titled it, you know, one word, and it's focused on a particular group of people. This week, the name of the message is The Bewitched. And the reason I use that word is because it's actually right here in the text. It's uh, used by Paul. Uh, Last week, we talked about the justified, and if you're a believer in Christ, you are justified. This week, the bewitched. We're going to be interesting to see what he means by this and who he's talking about. But let me read through the passage here real quick and get an idea, and then we'll see what we're going to be studying. It's Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so? by works of the law, or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, when I preach, a lot of times I'm thinking about what is the main uh, idea of the message, and I chose the bewitched. I want you to understand what Paul means by this word, bewitched. When I looked it up, it has reference to things like uh, sorcery, uh, witcheries, but I want to give an example for you to get an idea of what he's talking about here. Now, you know, I grew up uh, loving Star Wars. My boys all like Star Wars. My example comes from Star Wars. In fact, I got a picture here. There's a scene early on in the very first Star Wars movie where Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Jedi Masters, with Luke Skywalker then, who is just a guy, right? He's not really Jedi yet. And they're being sought after by all these guys in white. The stormtroopers are looking for them because they got these droids that have the secret plans to the Death Star, okay? Anybody familiar with this, right? You know this, right? I mean, most people know this. But in this scene, something happens when, if you ne- don't know anything about Star Wars, it was like, wow, what happened there? And what happens is they pull up and the guards stop them and there's the droids. They're caught red-handed. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going to happen, right? And the Jedi Master here, Ben Kenobi, he he waves his hands and he says, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And suddenly all the guards, they just start like falling into that. These aren't the droids we're looking for. You know, and then he says, you know, we can go on our way. They can go on their way. And, you know, of course, you don't know anything. You're like, what's going on? It's like, does he have some mind control power? You know, now everybody knows, you know, Jedi mind tricks. But this is the idea of bewitched. It's as if, like, there's something that's true, but like a wave of the hand, and somehow you don't believe it. And he's saying to them, because he's made this case about being justified by faith. And he's like, are you fools? It's... And what's going to happen, we're going to get to the end of this message, and I'm actually going to put this onto us as a church, any church really, where I could say, oh, you Bayvutians, are, are you bewitched? Because you're going to find that there's a way in which you know truth, and yet it's as if someone's waved the hand, and these aren't the droids you're looking for. And you just, you've got something else coming out of your mouth, you know? And this is like common thing now in like even in our house I come into the bedroom of one of my boys and they're supposed to have cleaned it and it's a mess and I'm like how come you guys haven't cleaned the room you know and it's like they look at dad and they go this isn't the room you're looking for you know this is this is how it works it's just like a wave of the hand we're going to make truth not be true right it's like I'm making a shake in the morning, and then I look over, and there's my son, Ethan, the weightlifter with all the muscles. He's making a shake, and I'm like, oh, what are you putting in yours? Because his, his muscles are bigger than mine. You know, what are you putting in yours? Maybe I'll put that in mine. You know, it's like, Dad, these aren't the roids you're looking for. You know, I mean, that's, 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 that is in pop culture now. 
And I want you to have that idea that Peter, uh, uh, Paul, is looking at this Galatian church with this kind of idea, like you know what is true, but yet you live like someone's done this to you. And we're going to see that as we go through that. But so hold that thought, because let me work through this passage and let me give you the first point that I get out of the verses. And the first point is the necessity of reproof. Let me just read you verse one again. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So um, what we see here, the necessity of reproof, if it's not true, it's like, hey, the droids are there, right? It's, we know it's true. So he does the work of always defending the true gospel. And he's going to lay that out. Uh, and he's done that through the whole book, right? And I go back to chapter 1, verse 6, where he said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which he says there isn't really another gospel. There's only one. Everything else is just a false gospel. So he's always defending the true gospel, justification by faith alone. And last week we looked at that where um, he said to, to be justified is to put your faith in the work that Christ did on the cross, not to put your faith in your own works, in the good things that you can do. And so he's always driving at this, right? And he makes this point when he says to them in verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, how would it be that these these, um, um, Galatian believers, they were not present at the foot of the cross, how, what does he mean by that? He was, you were, you, it was before your eyes that he was portrayed. And what he is saying there is that he spent time with them, investing in them, and he laid out what the true gospel was so vividly as if you were right there and saw what happened to Christ. I taught you. You know the truth is what he's saying. You know the truth. Christ was publicly portrayed. That word portrayed is like a public posting. Like you would put it on a, in a public place where everybody could walk by and see it. And he's saying to them, what I gave to you, it was public, public knowledge, and you know it. And I think about what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1, where he said that the gospel came not just in words, but in power by the Holy Spirit and with conviction. Because what we're going to see is he's going to defend also not only the gospel, but that they are saved. And so that's why he's so astonished at their responses. But we, we get this, that Paul defends the true gospel, but he also condemns the false gospel. And we get this from the language, right? We know it's a false gospel. He's been working on that, but he calls them fools for believing it. And then to use the language of you must be bewitched because I spent time with you, was publicly portrayed, but now somehow you're coming over here. It was only put your faith in the work that Christ did on the cross, but now you're coming over here and you're saying also other things, other things you need besides what Christ did. And so he's driving at that. And that's why, you know, a way to summarize this in the first verse is with such a view of Christ's person and work that was portrayed, displayed to them, taught by Paul with such a view, how could they have opened their minds to such a destructive error? So we see the necessity. If it's not true, then good teachers need to clarify that, what is true and what is not. And he reproofs them this way. And that leads me to what the heart of the message is, the second point, I put it this way, am I justified? And I put, yes, exclamation point. Now in this, the answer here is the people he's writing to. And you're going to see why. It's going to make some arguments why they are justified. Okay, Because um, the first thing that we see, and he's going to give several reasons here, is the reception of the Spirit. It means that they were believers. So he says, In verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit 
by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, that's a powerful argument if you don't know what he means by that. There's no question that they received the Spirit. The question is, how did they receive the Spirit? Did they receive the Spirit by faith or did they receive the Spirit by works? But there's no question that they received the Spirit because he's saying that to them. That's assumed in the way that he's asking it. And there was no doubt about that in their minds. He, they knew what he was talking about that they recognized that there was something that happened called the receiving of the Spirit. So that's one of the first arguments that he's going to give here. But I have to pause because I want to make sure that everybody in the room knows what I'm talking about. I can't assume that you understand what that means, reception of the Spirit. So I made a slide. This is kind of a sidestep. Uh, what does receiving the Spirit mean? And the simple understanding I put right there, when you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. There's a receiving of the Spirit into you. Now, in some parts of the New Testament, it describes it in a way that you would use the word almost to dwell, to live in. That word dwell is... is you get the idea of pitching a tent. It's like you're setting this up that is going to be a dwelling place that they come into and live. They're not visiting, but he's saying you receive the Spirit to come in and live inside of you. If after the church service, you came across the street and you walked over to my house, which one of my sons is over there now because all the plumbers are working at the house, and he opened the door and said, come on in. He received you to come in. That's the idea. But it wouldn't be to visit. You're coming in to live because the Holy Spirit came to live inside of them. Now, take that thought and let me give you one more to add to it because I'm going to talk to you about what a theological term means that connects to this, and that is baptism of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard this term? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we read in 1 Corinthians 12 right there, you can follow along with me. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to think or to drink of one spirit. Now he's talking about how in my human body, there are lots of individual parts, individual organs, but they all come together to make one body. And I often use this analogy. You take like out, you know, one of my organs and set it over there. Nobody walks by and says, oh, there's Kevin, you know, sitting in that chair. No, it's just, it's a part. But all the parts come together to make the one body. And he's saying that is what the church is. All of you are individual parts, individual members, and you come together to make one body. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the act in which you are made a member in that body. So when you put your faith in that message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you and lives within you, and that act puts you into the body into the body of Christ. You become a child of God. You're adopted into his family. And if you are a child of the king, then you're an heir to his kingdom. And all these things are taking place in one singular act, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, what else? Okay. What does receiving the Spirit mean then? And on this slide, I just put a simple way to think about baptism of the Holy Spirit. All that the Holy Spirit does at the beginning of our Christian lives. You say, well, what else? Is there more? Yeah, there's more. Baptism of the Spirit is a word that would describe all the different things that happen at the beginning of your salvation. Already I mentioned adoption. Already I mentioned you're placed as a member into that one body but let me show you a couple other things, okay? 
Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, a couple things there, but you see that there's a work that the Holy Spirit does called the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And this word sealed, Paul used in his day, it would have been used of if a king was going to send a scroll that had the contents of it belonged to him, what he wanted to say or to announce or to proclaim, you roll that scroll up and they would take hot wax and they would drip it onto the paper and seal it so you couldn't see what was in it without breaking that seal. And it protected the contents of that, of that document. And then the, the hot wax, while it's still malleable, they would take the king's ring and press it in on that. So it signified that the contents belonged to the, ins- the owner of that insignia, which was the king. That's what a seal was. And so when the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens, one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to put a seal upon you that you belong to the king. You are sealed that way. And look what goes with that. It's a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it. Now that word guarantee, in some of your translations, if you have other translations out there, you might find the word down payment or earnest payment. Now, if you've ever purchased like a car or a house and you you don't have all the money for it, one of the things you might do is you go in and you put a down payment. You make a payment that is a promise that you're going to make good on the rest of it. And the first one goes in and it's a sign of your commitment. And so baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're sealed. You belong to the King. And the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in you and indwells you is a down payment that God will make good on the salvation and the inheritance that comes with the adoption of becoming his son and being a child of the King. Do you see that? That is powerful. And it all happens in one moment. When you put your faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, <clears throat> something else. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So I put here, the Holy Spirit dispenses or gives out unique gifts to each member. Just like if you used, I used the analogy of the body, right? Each part of the body does something different. The heart pumps the blood. The intestine does something different than the liver. There's a unique function of each. And when you are put in the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes. And I I put in parentheses the word gifts, because if you go back to verses one through 10 in that chapter, he's talking about the spiritual gifts that, that are used. And he says, all of the gifts, they're empowered by one spirit, the same one, and he apportions or he gives out to each one individually as he wills. So it's almost like you come and it's like, there's a gift, there's a gift, there's a gift. And you can go and find what those gifts are. And you're supposed to learn what they are and use them. All the spiritual gifts are meant to minister to the body, to help it grow into maturity. So That's another thing that happens. When you become a believer, when you put your faith in the message that Jesus Christ died for my sins, you're you're baptized in the Spirit, and all of these things are going on. Sealed, a guarantee, you become a member of God's family, and you're given a gift like that to use. Now, I was saved when I was five, and all of these things happened. But my gift of teaching, of leading, I may not have really known those were there at the age of five. But as I grow in maturity, I I discover what those gifts are, and I begin to use them in a way that I grow in them. Now, you heard my father came when he preached, you know, I, I remember him making the comment, you know, Kevin, when he was a little, he walked into every room mouth first. So maybe there was a measure of that, you know, already there, but... But nonetheless, to say it happens when you become a believer in Christ. Now, I'm just trying to show you some of these things because now I'm going to go back to the argument. 
okay? Um, what, what is being filled with the Spirit? Because he says, are you bewitched? And he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? Okay, now let's look at his line, line of arguing there because um, that means you received the Spirit. That means you, all these things happened to you. You were baptized in the Spirit. You were put in the body of Christ. You were sealed. You're, there's a guarantee. All these things I've gone through, they happened to you. If he says you, were, you received the Spirit, there's a way what he's doing is he's saying, you're saved. Am I justified? Yes, because I spent time with you and invested in you and what I saw in you. You, you received the Spirit. It's, a, it's an evidence of, of your genuine salvation. But then look what he says. See, this is a line of argument. He says, uh, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing and faith? And he's trying to draw them back to the thing that, that they first brought them to salvation. Because they were, as we've gone through the, the letter, you can see that the Galatian church was, was, was setting aside faith and relying on works, following rules, or keeping traditions and customs to make themselves feel like they were right before God, or they were more clean than others at least, as we saw in the case of Peter. And he's saying to them, but when you receive the Spirit, it wasn't by all those things. It wasn't by works. It was by faith and faith by hearing. And so there's the argument. You receive the Spirit by faith, not law. You are being perfected by faith, he says, not law. That word perfected means matured. So like I was saying when I was five, all those things happened to me, but I have a lot of growing up to do in my faith. Growing up into maturity, not by just following rules, but by the Holy Spirit drawing me more and more into Christ-likeness, letting me see how the gospel message needs to be applied to my life. And I'm going to come back to that thought at the very end of this message to kind of show you how that works. But right here in this moment, what you see is it's not by the law. So maturity does not come by just following rules. Our culture has sometimes become fixated on uh, controlling behavior with structures and boundaries, abandoning looking at what's at the heart of the child. Whatever's at the heart of the child is who they are. And it's possible for them to be totally different on the inside than, well, I see them following all the rules we got. And this is why David writes in the Psalms to pay attention to the heart of the child because it's the wellspring of their soul. Now, not just by following the rules. You are being supplied the Spirit for works by faith, not by the law. So here, the Holy Spirit is working in your life based upon your faith, not just by following the law. And it's the pattern. He gets to the end and he says, suffering is a sign of your sincerity, right? Because he says at the end, so he says, you are you now being perfected by the flesh? And what's really great here is that he says, he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being matured by the flesh? Meaning, you started off faith, and it's a spiritual thing. Why are you going back to this to try to grow in maturity? But then he says, um, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So the thing that I would point out here is that as I looked at this, that there are a couple thoughts about what he means by this, because the word suffering could be taken that um, if you go through the book of Acts, it was something for a Jew who grew up following the law to suddenly abandon all of it and come over here and put their faith in the work of Jesus Christ, and they suffered greatly for it. 
Paul persecuted the church. We heard about that. They were going through physical persecution, separating from their family, who's saying, why are you abandoning our culture and our people and who we are? And he's saying, was it all in vain? Back then you walked in it and believed in it? Now, another thought is that it can be seen as a hardship to go through the transitioning of letting go of the things of the world that you love. So he could be talking about a suffering that is, I love this, in the, the, God's Word is saying, let go of it. And it's like it's being ripped away and you want to hold on to it. And it could be talking about that as well. But either way, Paul's point is the same, which is this, that the way the Spirit entered your life at the beginning is the way the Spirit advances in your life. It's not by works, it's by faith in what Christ did. And Paul's argument was that they were already Christians, they were justified. He gives the evidence through these different points that I'm making to them, that they received the Holy Spirit in all these ways, and now why are they, as he said, astonished, deserting what they had been taught? Now, that's the first thing. Are they justified? Are they are they Christians? And he says, yes, because you receive the Spirit. Argument number two is going to be an example from Abraham. Let me read to you what he says. He says, um, and I'll back up just a little bit. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by, and this is key, hearing with faith? And then he says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he's saying to them, not by works, not by works, not by the law, by faith. And, the, and then he says, by the way, hearing, and then the faith is here. And then he goes, he drops Abraham on them as the example, which is astonishing. Okay, now let me show you why. Because... Um, I put a couple down. The first is this, that it's saying that Abraham was counted righteous not by his own virtues. It says he was counted righteous because he believed. He believed in God by hearing with faith. If you go back up to verse 16 of chapter 2, Paul wrote, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Abraham was, um, by the way, if you don't know who Abraham was, he was the first Jew. From him came all the nation of the Jews, all of Israel. He was the first. And so there's, there's a way in which he's pointing back all the way to the very beginning. And God made a covenant with Abraham. You are my people, and these are my promises to you. And the sign of that covenant was circumcision. And so there's an astonishing thing for him to say right here that, yes, he was made righteous, but it was because he believed, not because of the circumcision, not because of the lineage of being a Jew, because he's going to go on to say, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, because there was, there was something to be said that we are Jews so we get to participate in this promise of this blessing just by relationship to Abraham. And they're going to make an argument that says, no, no, because the very first one of you was not because of his ethnicity and who he was. It was because of his faith, faith. Now, the other thing I love about this is it uses the word counted. So it says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted, or that word means credited as righteousness, this is interesting because what that means, that word credit is a transaction. It's a transaction. Like in business, you would purchase something on credit. It's, it's something is happening where transaction. So here's, here's the point you can make from that. Go all the way back in time from this moment. Actually, when the law was given. And then you go back another 200 years, a transaction happened where this guy was credited for, to be righteous based upon his faith before the law was ever given. So to hold a view that says you've got to follow rules, 
Well, he was credited before those rules were even given to Moses, hundreds of years before that. And so the argument that he is giving here is that it's not new. It's as old as Abraham. Because they could have looked at what Paul was talking about and said, this is something new. The history of our people, we never did it this way. You had to follow all the laws. And this is a new thing. And they would say it's not new. Actually, it goes all the way back to Abraham. It's as old as Abraham. And you're seeing this. It occurred hundreds of years before the law, and the implication is it's not new. And then lastly, in verse 7, it's, which I read, Know then, because of all these things, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, there could be a Jew that would say, I'm a, the son of Abraham. Well, ethnically, maybe. But spiritually, not unless you put faith in what Christ did. Now, even today in the world, there's a, a people called Messianic Jews, if you've heard of them. And what that means is they're Jew ethnically, racially. They go all the way back to Abraham. But the word mess, Messianic, Messiah, means they have put their faith in what Christ did on the cross, which means they got both links back to Abraham. The, the, ethnically, they go back to Abraham, but spiritually, they go back to him when he put his faith in something looking forward, not looking back like us, but looking forward. And salvation is based upon that. And what Paul says right there is powerful because basically he's saying the true offspring of Abraham are those who've put their faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that would have been stunning, stunning. For, for some Jews to hear that, they would, have, they would have been angry to hear that. So, he's making this argument. Are you saved? Yes, because I saw you receive the Spirit, and all those things happen with that. And number two, you receive the Spirit based upon faith, and Abraham is an example that, going all the way back to the very beginning, it's by faith, not by works. And then lastly, he gives an argument by evidence of Scripture. And in verse 8 it says, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what's stunning here is he goes all the way back to Abraham again. And do you know what he says? Abraham was preached the gospel. But I thought the gospel message was Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Rose again, substitutionary, atonement, all that. How could that be preached to Abraham? And he's going all the way back saying the gospel was preached to him, looking ahead, knowing that at some point, why? What was preached to him? Ultimately, it was faith in the word of God. And for Abraham, it was faith in that the words that he's saying to me will come true. And then for us, it's looking back, it's faith that what happened on the cross was true. And that what he did took my place so that my sins had been paid. So that I'm forgiven. And there's no penalty. But the evidence here he gives is that Scripture talked about it. The blessing of justification includes pardon. It includes eternal life. And he says that essentially Gentiles share in that. And anyone who puts their faith in, like me, like you, if you do, then you are spiritually related to Abraham in that way. We're grafted into that. Now, um, John MacArthur on this point says, whether Jew or Gentile, the Old Testament predicted Gentiles would receive blessing of justification by faith like Abraham, and it is to everyone based upon what Christ did. And that's what his, the last point for today is that. I want to show you that he gives three arguments, okay, why they are saved. Now, let me see my next slide. 
How do we live by faith? If you are justified, if you've put your faith in Christ, the question is, how do you live by faith? Let's just look at this again. I have been crucified with Christ. We talked about that last week. That's the past. That basically means you, were, you share in Christ's past. He died on the cross, and you, through him, died on the cross, and the sins that you have committed are paid for. It's paid in full. Nothing more needs to be done. That's why there is no penalty. There is no condemnation if you put your faith in that. But then he goes on to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I underlined it. I italicized it. Because you need to ask yourself the question, how do you live by faith then? Yes, I'm going to put my faith in that message of, of death on the cross for me, but what does it mean for now and for today? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this is where I want you to consider what it means to live by faith. Because justified, we are, I just said it, no penalty. That means stop trusting in your moral effort. Stop trying to earn it by, by works, by following all the rules. I followed the rules. Never going to do it. If you break anyone, you've broke them all. You're guilty of them all. Scripture says, okay, I put my faith in that. But remember, salvation is not just no penalty. Salvation also means that you get to live life as if you are a person who never broke the law. Do you remember that last week? I said, look around, there's no policemen here, no detectives tracking you down that we know of because you haven't broke any laws. What does that mean then? And how does that shape your hope? So, and this is where, I'm going to walk through this. We're going to finish with this. The way that the Spirit entered your life. So, the Spirit helped open my eyes. I saw, I put faith in Christ. And now going forward in life, the way the Spirit advances is putting my faith in how that impacts life, how I live. So think about this. I want you to consider these things. Maturing as a believer. We use the word perfecting, right? The Spirit is perfecting us. It's maturing us. It's not about learning more spiritual truths. It's about seeing the gospel shine its light into more and more territory of your heart. And as believers who minister to others, there's nothing more important than to constantly be applying the gospel in your life and constantly Applying the gospel to the lives of those around you. In other words, maturing is about allowing that gospel message to come in and impact us in here. It's not just about how much theology you know. It's about conforming to the gospel. Conforming to a Christ-likeness in how you live every single day. So the, 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 the verse said to live by faith. Christ now lives in me. Well, how do we live by that faith? You wake up in the morning. When you wake up in the morning, I think about coffee right away. I love my coffee. Okay, but this is a time to remember who you are, what you're going to do that day. Ah, Temptation can set in. Some of you have experienced this. I know everybody. Immediately, worry, anxiety. There are things in your life that cause you. It steals joy. That's not living by faith. Maybe you wake up and it's just a feeling of like, you know, lukewarm kind of joy. Like this is uh, it's just a work day. You know, it's not a Saturday where I get to do something I really like to do. My joy is in that. It's not in, you know, nine to five going to work. So, you know, this acceptance, lukewarm joy over an average day. But we remember the gospel. The morning is a time to experience God's mercies. They're new. Every morning, Lamentation says, it's a time to remember who we really are. We're not workers. 
We're not students. We're not spouses. We're not parents. But we're sinners, fundamentally sinners saved by grace. It's a time to remember that we're gonna, what we're going to do that day. We're going to worship God for the love He's shown us. It's a time to enjoy Christ more than your coffee, more than your shower. Now, I know all about this because we had no hot water for seven weeks. Hot showers were not to be found in my house. It was terrible. When we finally got hot water, my son Ethan's like, I'm going to be the first. And he jumped in that thing. And then we could hear him in there, Wah! because when they turned on the hot water, somehow they turned off the cold water. Now it was only hot shower. Yeah, that's right. And he's a big guy. It's kind of hard not to be missed by the water, you know, in there. But we love our hot showers. You know, we love our good breakfast. You know, it, it's a time to enjoy the beautiful things he's blessed us with and bring us back to his glory. This is what mourning should be like. Relationships. Through the gospel, we become a new people, united to Christ in God and to each other. The gospel humbles us. It assures us we're loved. We're now free from envy, free from pride, free from a feeling of inferiority or a feeling of superiority. We no longer receive our sense of worth through approval by people. And we don't feel like we should have power over people. It makes our relationships a thing of beauty, driven by love. We neither use people nor are we overly dependent upon them, but we're free to serve them, to affirm them, and sometimes confront them, whatever is best for them. This is how the living by faith affects our relationships. As Christians, our relationships to other Christians now is one of service and encouragement towards worship of Christ. We no longer need to prove we are more holy than the person next to us. That's what Peter was doing. If I go back through Galatians, Peter failed right there. How are you supposed to relate to other Christians? A feeling of I'm more holy than you based upon how we follow rules or traditions in our church. Peter failed at it. And in that moment, he was not living by faith. That's why Paul said he's not in step with the gospel. The gospel changes. It comes and it penetrates. You have a feeling of superiority over them. That's not, that's not the gospel. That's something else in you. Living by faith means that our relationships with Christians, we can relax, we can embrace true friendships Based not on what we bring to the table, but on our common status as sinners saved by grace. How about non-Christians? Because sometimes, you know, Christians, we feel like we shouldn't hang out with non-Christians. You know, they might, you know, stain us. They might, we might, you know, become infected with sinful ideas and thoughts. And we sometimes want to marginalize anybody who's not a Christian. But the gospel changes that. We don't have to avoid non-Christians out of disgust or fear. We live out the same hopes, and we do not live out the same hopes, fears, or sins that non-Christians do. We found something better in Christ. The gospel allows us to be fully <clears throat> devoted to God while still having legitimate friendships with non-believers. And since we're saved by grace, not by our own efforts or merits, we no longer look down on them, but we want to encourage them to embrace what we've found. And then I would say, just in our words and thoughts, you know, our identity comes from Christ alone. We don't have to look down on or idolize or envy or be anxious about others in our mind or how we communicate. Without this motivation, things like gossip, slander, they're no longer necessary. Neither is unhealthy competition. Because of the gospel, we can look at every person with the love of Christ and the knowledge that they are made in the image of our God and Father.
How about your work? When you go to work, when you go into the office, or you go into the classroom, it should be something that's owned by the gospel as well. No longer do you worship your work because you receive your confidence from God, not your performance. The way that Christ sacrificed and loved you can now be showcased in the way you serve those around you. When you're tempted to hope in your performance or your salary, you can turn to hope in Christ. The way you treat people above or below you reflects the gospel. Your submission is like Christ, and you never lord it over those beneath you because the gospel keeps you humble. I mean, this is the way Christ was. And when Paul says, Christ who lives in me, if we are living like Christ, think about how he interacted. Never a feeling of superiority, even though he was the Son of God. He served. Um, Possessions. Since we no longer find our identity in our financial status, we no longer need to hoard our money or fear for fear of the future. We're free to supply the needs of others out of a gratitude to God for the grace He's shown us. And one of the marks of a heart truly committed to Christ, transformed by His grace, is a life poured out in deeds of mercy and justice for others. And lastly, at the end of the day, right, when you go to bed and you put your head down on that pillow and you're going to sleep at night, we can trust that God is faithful. We sleep well when we remember the forgiveness we found from the gospel and the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. That was written by a friend of mine, and he gave it to me. And I wanted to finish with this idea of triggers because, you know, in our culture, we you know, the word trigger is often like something happened and it triggered something in me, a feeling. But the reality is that from the, from the beginning of the birth of the church, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. Christians have had to struggle and learn about triggers in a way that you probably aren't thinking. Because it would work like this. If you find yourself anger, something triggers anger in you. Well, Why? What are you angry about? Something triggers anxiety. What, what are you anxious about? If our identity is solid in who we are in Christ, anything can happen. And there should be hope and joy. Why? Because we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And our inheritance is for sure secured in heaven where rust, where rust and moth cannot corrupt it. But perhaps you've put your faith or your hope in something here that's earthly. And the reason you're triggered to anger, the reason you're triggered to anxiety is because it's being messed with. You're messing with the thing I love. And it's showing you you're not living by faith. And that's where I could say, oh, foolish Bevushians, if that's a word. Have you been bewitched? I love this thing so much, and I, it's not happening the way it should. That's not the thing you really hoped for, right? You've been duped. It's saying to you, put your hope in Christ. My hope's over here. See how that works? You've been bewitched. It's a sign that you are bewitched, just like the Galatians. And that's why Paul is teaching us. Live by faith. Put your hope and joy and security in what Christ has done on the cross. The work of Him was final. There is no condemnation. And I keep circling back to this idea I know in the Guam culture that this idea of penance and purgatory, it doesn't work. I've done something wrong. Well, I'm told if I just say this many prayers or, or if after my life I go and I'm in purgatory for a certain amount of time, it'll pay that off. 
but it's already paid. And if you could do that, and I keep saying this, why do we need Christ at all? Because if I can, I mean, just think about how long eternity is. If I live to be 100 years old, and then I just went to purgatory 100 years for every year I was a failure, that's a long time, but it's really, really small compared to eternity. I mean, you could pay off everything, no matter how long it was, get out, and then you have eternity. Anybody could make their way. And, and that's why it's so dangerous. That's why you are bewitched to think that you can. You don't need to. Christ did it all on the cross for us. And that's what you put your faith in. There's no penalty. And then going forward, you live by faith. And you demonstrate that by everything I laid out. How you get up in the morning, the relationships you have with people, Christians and non-Christians, what you do at work, how you manage your possessions, they're all a testimony of whether or not we really live by faith or somehow we, we've got our hope in something that's here on this earth and it triggers us to anxiety or to anger or depression because we've been bewitched. And Paul's calling us back to put your faith in Christ. You are saved. You have received the Spirit. Put your faith and joy in that and walk by faith. Father, thank you for this great letter by Paul, as we can see, walking by faith, getting up in the morning all the way to when we put our head on the pillow, what that means, our relationships, our possessions, the work you give us, that we are not to have a superiority complex or, or think of people as being inferior. The reality is none of us deserve to be adopted into your family. None of us deserve inheritance, eternal life. All have sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. But because you loved us first, Christ died for us. We are all sinners saved by grace and united in that. And it affects the way we think about our relationships with one another. It, it, it affects the way we, we view our life. It's temporary. We can lose a building. We can lose a child. We can lose a job. But our true inheritance is secure and our joy is in that. And there may be moments of sorrow, but they don't linger long. We thank you for that. We thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for the reminder by Paul that we are justified. We are saved because we have received the Spirit. We've been sealed. You've gifted us in a way to nurture one another with our gifts. There's a promise that's been made, a down payment. May we fix our eyes on that and walk by faith in Christ's name. Amen. Stand together. We're going to sing, and this song is going to lead us into our time of communion.